to the 35th episode of the Circle of Competence podcast. We're pleased to be joined today by Sieva Kaczynski and Xavier Hegelson, co-founders and partners of Enduring Ventures, a holding company in the model of Berkshire Hathaway. In short, they buy great businesses and aim to hold them forever. Enduring Ventures was founded in 2019 and so far has acquired eight businesses, including old school businesses like plumbing and air conditioning companies, as well as enterprise software companies like UpCouncil. Guys, welcome to the Circle of Competence. It's great to be here. They made it <laughs> after all these years. You made it. <laughs> so um, I, I want to start out with um, a tweet that Xavier made uh, recently. It's pinned on his profile. And then we'll kind of backtrack from there and talk about the beginnings of uh, Enduring Ventures. So this pinned tweet explains y'all's thesis uh, in two parts. The first is to take the digital growth strategies of tech and apply them to non-tech companies, and then take the profitability strategies of non-tech companies and apply them to tech companies you buy. So I just wanted you guys to kind of dig in there and explain those two components, because uh, I think it'll be a great intro to the kind of the philosophy behind Enduring Ventures. Yeah, I can, I can kick off with that one. So I think what makes us a really interesting team is we can play both sides of the field. Sieve and I have both founded uh, web companies I've done software and hardware, um, but I've also uh, built a you know, built a warehouse operation from zero and and um, done a fair bit in, in building logistics out um, and other things over my entrepreneurial career. So, you know, when we look at the market, we see that there's these two incredibly different worlds. There's uh, there's the profitable small and mid-sized businesses that are really measured by profitability, but they don't have um, a lot of them have not made the leap to digital. They don't have uh, databases of their inventory. They don't have, um, you know, uh, digital marketing strategies. They've, they've not updated the brand, et cetera. Um, and then on the uh, flip side, um, so many software and digital companies, uh, you know, grow with venture capital. The model is get to your run. You can run on profitably because you'll raise your next venture round. And so taking that profitability discipline to those areas, you wouldn't think is, is revolutionary, but it's amazing how many businesses don't, uh, don't run with that profitability discipline. Totally. So you guys, um, I'd love to dig into your backgrounds a little bit. Um, I think it's just really fascinating that you came from this tech world and are using those skills and strategies in this, uh, kind of boring business world. So, um, you know, just both of you guys would love to kind of hear an overview of your backgrounds and kind of what led you to each other and to Enduring Ventures. Yeah, sure. Um, so, you know, as Xavier said, our, our backgrounds are maybe a little unconventional for this world of buying service companies. We uh, were both tech founders or tech adjacent founders. Um, I spent the last 10, 15 years uh, building software companies. So, my first business was an education marketplace for college students to share notes. So, you know, our simple insight there was students, especially at big public schools, need help. They need support. They need some uh, structure in their academic uh, learning process. So what we did is we went to the best students in the class and we would just hire them to post their class notes on our website. And then when people in their class would buy those notes, uh, we would share the revenue with them. So I started that little business at my school at, at UC Santa Barbara, which is where I went to undergrad. 
and it took off. Um, lots of people started buying notes. Note takers were making a bunch of money. So we raised a little bit of angel funding and then went and expanded that model out to about 300 different college campuses in the US. Um, it was all, it was kind of like an online offline model. Um, it was a marketplace, um, great little subscription business that, that we built out. And then I hired a CEO there who, um, who's, who has been running the business ever since. And then I spent some time as a venture capital investor, um, all like early stage, early seed investments in high growth technology companies. So we're like looking for the next Ubers and Airbnbs of the world. Um, I also built a healthcare services company, which is a clinical research business. And basically what we did there is we, we worked with private practice doctors to help them run research in their offices. So pharmaceutical companies who want to run clinical trials would pay us. We would split, split the money with uh, the doctor and then we would help them run trials in their office. And then I ended up selling that business and uh, Xavier and I then started talking a little bit about this enduring ventures model and what a long-term uh, kind of collaboration between the two of us could look like. And that's, that's really where we started. Um, it was, it was the, the main question that I think he asked me was, you know, what's a, what's a company or a project that you'd be willing to do for the next 15, 20 years or more? Um, and we kind of reverse engineered what is a business structure, what is an investment structure that we could do that we would be excited about doing for the long term. Um, because previously, you know, all of my startups had, had been focused on the three, four, five year kind of sprint. How do I get in, build something innovative, hire a bunch of people and then get out, whether it means, you know, I leave or, or I hire a CEO or, or we sell the business. And this exercise of, of really thinking about the long-term pushed us to starting Enduring Ventures, which, uh, which we can talk a little bit more about in a minute. What about you, Xavier? So I had a, I had a few longer runs. So I had two companies I founded uh, that grew uh, sort of into the eight-figure revenue category. Uh, so one is called Better World Books. Um, if anyone uh, likes to read books or um, needs book, textbooks for class, uh, Better World Books is one of the first uh, pure play online used booksellers. So it was actually launched before Amazon Marketplace opened up and then we wrote the growth of Amazon Marketplace over the, uh, over the years. Um, so I was founder of that business. Um, while I was there, we grew to about 45 million in revenue and about 200-ish employees. Um, and then I served as chairman for a number of years and I went to, uh, went to business school. And I've always liked to work on big ideas that can change the world. And so um, I, I, I moved uh, to Africa after business school and started a distributed solar company. And uh, it's kind of a crazy thing to do. And to be honest, I changed geography. I changed industry. I really, I really reinvented myself. Um, and that company uh, also grew. It was, a, it was about the right time for that. Um, so it's called Zola Electric. Um, it's interestingly, one of Tesla's only uh, strategic investments. So it brings um, uh, Tesla, we have many other investors, but Tesla is obviously one that, that folks know. Uh, Vulcan Capital, uh, DBL Partners, or uh, Helios Partners are some of the other ones. Um, and that was um, was and is still going strong. I'm just out of day-to-day -day there. Um, a, a venture-funded model. We're going to build revolutionary plug-and-play solar and battery technology hook it to mobile payments and make it so people can pay for 
solar like you could pay your electric bill. Um, and, uh, and so I realized that as much as I love starting that, I didn't love giving, uh, running a, a, in that case, a 500 person organization. Um, and actually management was, um, you know, prob I tell people I don't like to manage. Uh, I, I, <laughs> I find it draining. So I like to work on ideas. I like to identify great people and I like to trust them as, as much as I possibly can uh, to, to, to see that, to see those ideas through. Um, and so that was, uh, as I was winding out of that, I was really trying to figure out what, uh, what to do next. And I didn't want to reinvent myself. I wanted to reinvent myself one more time and then have that be, that be that. Um, before we get into the boring businesses segment, uh, this is the segment I'm excited about getting into. I just want to know how did how did two uh, super sophisticated tech guys get attracted to the boring businesses space? Like what what was that conversation like? And then what was the initial partnership like coming together with two separate organizations' efforts to kind of merge that into one entity or or direction? So you know I think. At its core, we've always been Warren Buffett and Charlie Munger fans. I know we're not the only ones out there. Um, I'd read all of his biographies and some work, all of Warren Buffett's biographies and some work on Charlie Munger too, and was just always super impressed by a couple things. One is, you know, they had a very simple, they've always had a very simple thesis, right? Invest in great American companies uh, that aren't going to be disrupted over the decades to come. And if you do that well, and you work with great managers and great leaders, then those businesses will create cash flow, and you can use that cash flow to buy more businesses or to invest. And over a long enough period of time, you can really build up a war chest um, and, uh, and essentially like a roster of great companies. So I, I was really attracted to that idea. I'm kind of like a business nerd, but I also have business ADD. So focusing on one company um, sometimes to me after a few years can get a little boring, but this model of having a long-term holding company or having a business where we can look at a lot of different companies was pretty exciting. Um, and then, you know, I think as we started digging into it and talking about this model, um, we were looking at companies that were on the market. We we're look, talking to different brokers, looking at different websites. And I think it really got, you know, my creative juices flowing and got Xavier super excited. I, was, I would send him deals and, you know, he would look at them and we were just blown away. There's thousands and thousands of these amazing companies that are generating, you know, millions of dollars of profit where the owners want to retire. They've built a great brand. They've built a great reputation. Um, and they don't, they just don't have anyone to hand that business to. So because of that, we have this unique opportunity to buy an amazing business with an amazing brand at a reasonable price, maybe three, maybe four, maybe five times earnings, um, which as you know, is, is an un, uh, unbelievable value when you come from the software world. Xavier, how about you when, when you guys were considering sort of merging your by the way are they merged are they in underneath the same umbrella or are they still separate and you guys are sort of funneling cash flow to these new opportunities explain how the whole holding company is set up yeah so we um 
anything that Sieve and I did previously, we said that's that's before, that's still our individual stuff. We're not pledging that into the holding company. But anything we do going forward, we're doing together. So it's set up as a as a C corp. Um, and we have shareholders. Uh, we basically just raise money from some friends and family that we want to um, you know want to try to do well by. We don't think we'll raise institutional money into it. Never, never say never, but but that would be unlikely. Uh, we we viewed it more as saying, what is the minimum amount of capital we need to start doing this, and be willing to be patient if that's if that's what's needed to use our use our operational skills to generate cash flow. We can we can reinvest. How is the C corp and the the shares? How are they structured? Are they different types? Is it all the same sort of peri common equity? Do they come with dividends? Is it all reinvested? Like talk a little bit about that, uh, like the structure high level, if you're willing to. Oh yeah, I'm a I'm a total structure geek. So I'll I'll open source this part because I think that it's actually really valuable for anyone else thinking about it. So so there's you may be familiar with qualified small business stock. So you can, if you if you buy shares in a C corporation and you hold them for five years, you can sell up to $10 million of those shares without federal capital gains tax. It's an enormous, enormous structural advantage. And the other thing that uh, C Corps allow you to do is reinvest cash flow. So if I have a fund structure, I get taxed on the distributions from that fund. I'm not, I'm only reinvesting after-tax dollars. Here, if I have a C Corp, and I have one business that makes tax losses, let's say an asset heavy business that I can have depreciation, I can use those to shield other profits that, uh, that you know, businesses that don't have a depreciation shield, for example. Um, and this is really the genius of Buffett. And it doesn't, um, it doesn't work as well for short termism, which I think is why the private equity industry hasn't adopted it. They, they get their fees the day they raise the fund and they sort of make, they make good money even if they don't make their investors' money, and they make fantastic money if they do make their investors' money, and and so that's and that's all that's all good. And when you look at the search fund world, it's sort of modeled after private equity, just in a micro version. And so we thought, hey, set up a C corp. Cave and I will be the common shareholders. We'll sell preferred shares to our founding investors, um, but they'll have really simple terms. And one. Uh, Probably the most interesting term is to say that after five years, if the company has free cash flow, it'll start buying back its shares, uh, which is another Berkshireism. So that's the way that you return capital to shareholders who want to get out: is you buy the shares from them. And if um, if there's no cash flow, we don't do it. If there is cash flow, we we set a valuation of the businesses each year as a as a bundle, um, and then we we buy the shares valued against that bundle. Is it formulaic in nature? Is it a third-party audit? Um, and then do they have like one time a year or a certain time they can redeem capital? Yeah, that's exactly it. So it's one time a year. It's uh, based on pitch book multiples. So we say we'll value things based on just just normal pitch book data on on kind of size of business and, and EBITDA multiple based on that. Um, probably the only thing we may have to navigate is we we did a startup, which I didn't anticipate. So we'll have to figure out how to value that, but we'll probably value that at something like the last funding round. So you guys obviously had successful careers, um, honestly, pretty unbelievable careers before you guys started Enduring Ventures a couple of years ago. But I'm always interested in the fundraising process um, and hearing like 
just what that's like from people who've done it. So um, for you guys, like when you decided to partner together and, and decided uh, that Enduring Ventures uh, was going to be a holding company, a C Corp, um, how, what was that process like? How long did it take to raise the capital you needed? Um, what, what did you learn in that process that was interesting or surprising to you? That's a, that's a great question. I'll field the first part of it and then Sieva will have some thoughts. Um, so I w- I've raised a lot of capital in my life, probably $250 million plus or minus. Um, and so you definitely learn that it's, it's a process and that, that part of that process is actually just making your pitch, that your pitch gets a little better each time. And so you don't necessarily even want to pitch your best targets right away. You want to just start making the pitch again and again until you believe in it go to a smart person who's friendly, who probably won't invest, pitch them. Um, and so I think we did a bit of that. And then we got a lead who is um, uh, Sean Purry. Um, I was a podcaster who does My First Million and a really good entrepreneur in his own right. And Sean did something we really didn't expect, which is write a much bigger check than we, we thought he was going to write. And I think I would say really Sean's vote of confidence uh, made it you know, he gave us a tremendous amount of confidence. And, and I think you are almost always in a fundraising process. I've had that one person who sort of said, I believe in you guys. Like, I, I believe in what you're doing. It all makes sense to me. And I want to, I, I want to be first money into this because this could be, this could really be something. Um, and I think once you have that, then that's a signal to everyone else that someone smart believes in it, but it's also uh, confidence is so reflected by the way you you just handle yourself, that I think you you subconsciously bring more confidence to 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 any conversation going forward. Um, Save so you. Do you have anything to add on the process? Um, I think you got most of it. I, I would just say that raising money for a holding company is going to be pretty tricky uh, for for other folks that are li- listening because an investor is going to see it as a blind pool of capital. They don't know, they don't really know what are the companies that you're investing in. Maybe your track record isn't fully proven yet. Um, I think for us, it was possible because we only went to friends and family. We only went to people that we've known for decades who've seen us building our companies, who've seen us um, exiting companies and therefore kind of blindly believed in us, right? That was, Sean is, is a good example of that. I've known Sean for, you know, six, seven, eight years and when we started this thing, he said, yeah, whatever you guys are doing, basically I'm going to invest in. And when we brought this idea to him, he got really excited about it. And so did a lot of our other friends. So I think if someone is just getting started and they don't have a track record, whether it's investing or building companies, I would recommend um, going on a company by company basis. So find a great company that you love, um, go to your investor pool, generate some interest, once you have the interest, get the company under LOI and then go on and close it, do your due diligence and close it. And then once you've done a couple of those, you can either flip that into a holding company model or just separately start a holding company. Yeah, I think that's really, really good advice. And I would say it's something if, if a holding company is an aspiration, you can even build it into your terms. So you can say, hey, investor, once I, you know, once I return you 2x your capital, I might put you in a holding company for the for the balance of it, or once some or three extra capital or some number, and you you kind of build that in advance, and you even update them from time to time. Hey, we're looking at other opportunities. 
and and so that you can start to um, at some point they'll want to flip into the holding company because they'll already have gotten their capital back from the first deal, um, and and you can you can always go find a firm to value businesses. So you can always go find a firm to value the three businesses you own and say, here's what share of the holding company they each get. And so here's what's fair for shareholders. And, um, as long as you have some sort of provisions where the majority of shareholders approve something, then it goes through and the rest kind of have to go along with it. Then I think a little bit of thoughtfulness on that upfront can, can really help if the holding company is an aspiration. We, we thought we might have to do deal by deal as well. Um, and I think we were pleasantly surprised to see that we got enough, frankly, we got enough capital and we found a few good deals that then it sort of built on itself uh, a little quicker than we would have anticipated. Do you want to tell them a little bit about our vesting schedule? Cause I think it's, it's also kind of helpful. Basically. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, you know, I, ch I championed this and, and Sieva was uh, gracious enough to go along with my crazy idea, but the idea is a 14 year vest. Um, so, the um, about 90% of the shares vest in the first seven years and about 10% uh, vest in the second um, seven years. And so the goal here is really that this is actually another Buffettism. A lot of people don't know Buffett never got stock options. He never got paid more than like $100,000 a year. His entire value of Berkshire was equity that he got basically from, from the original acquisition. Um, and I think it's a good model because if you if you have that equity, that should be enough. You shouldn't need more to keep you around. But it's also reasonable to say that if, for whatever reason, Sieva wants to go off and do something else, and wants to, you know, in year three wants to go to an ashram for a while, that uh, you know he should he shouldn't be vesting at the same speed as as someone's run, who's running full speed. And so I think. A long-term vest was a really strong signal to our investors that that we were all in. This wasn't one of many. This was the thing we would do, and so as it involves, uh, you know, as as the investment is more person-centric, it's it's important that you show that yourself as a person that you're you're committed to this project. I'm only going to ashrams if we're buying ashrams. I can meditate at home. <laughs> It's, like, it's a great business model. People pay you to kind of just sit here. <laughs> yeah, you know, there's uh, there's some interesting ones out there. I was just going to ask about Sean Sean's investment. Was that marketed to other investors after that? Like, was that sort of an anchor that you could then build on, or was that sort of a non-factor in the momentum? I'm just curious, you know, how that played out that dynamic that dynamic with future investors. It was. Um, it wasn't explicitly. It wasn't like here's a Sean Purry investment, but naturally you get into the conversation of, uh, especially Sean's very well networked. So, you know, I think a number of our other checks came from people. Sean texting people and saying, "Hey, you should you should get in this," and it also created a sort of uh, momentum. I would say we started fundraising a, about a month before the whole country shut down. And bizarrely, um, we stopped really actively fundraising, um, you know, in April of, of, of COVID times because we already had enough momentum and we didn't have an immediate need for the money. So every once in a while, we'd just take a meeting and, and um, subscribe a little more of the round if, if we liked the person and we wanted to, want them to be a shareholder. Um, but we, we, we really only had to actively fundraise, I'd say for about 30 days. And, and that was in the middle of COVID, which was, which was kind of a funny thing to do. 
two more questions kind of on the origin origins of Enduring Ventures for you. Um, the first, I think we kind of glossed over, but I, I just think it's so important that we have to dig in is just on uh, the partnership. Um, it's, it's so important to find the right partner because it, it's almost like a marriage. Um, you, you just spend so much time with them and you get to know everything about them. So how did you guys get to know each other? Um, and then what were those early conversations like about starting Enduring Ventures? So Xavier and I, we met at, on a ski mountain um, in a, at an event called Summit Series. It's basically this, you know, this group of young guys originally that got together and started hosting events, kind of like invite only events for founders, CEOs, um, artists as well, celebrities, et cetera. Um, and it was just an opportunity to kind of get together and, you know, do an activity. Sometimes it was skiing, sometimes it was something else. And then they would also bring great speakers and invite great people. So you could meet pretty interesting folks through those events. Um, the first event that I went to, um, Xavier and I, I think we shared a house actually for the weekend. Um, and at the time he was running Zola Electric, uh, which is the off-grid solar company in Africa. And I was running my education company and we just immediately became buddies. You know, we, we skied together that weekend. Um, we had dinner together. Um, and, you know, for me, I very much thought that what he was doing was, was really cool, right? He's building this awesome solar company in Africa. It's both doing good in the world. It's got a great social mission, but it's also an amazing business, right? You have a recurring revenue utility type business that people pay for every month. Um, and I had always, you know, I, everything that I've always done, I try to see through a social lens, right? I, there's hundreds and hundreds of startups that I could have started, but I focused my attention in education or healthcare. Um, so for me, it was interesting to, to meet someone kind of uh, a fellow kindred spirit who was doing something similar, right? Building great businesses and uh, in areas that were positively impacting people's lives. Um, so yeah, so we, so we were buddies for about five, six years. I actually used to host a mastermind, uh, dinner once a month, Sean and I used to host it in San Francisco, um, and Xavier would attend and we have a couple other buddies that, that would come every month. And that was a great group. A lot of those folks ended up being our investors or advisors in one way or, or another. Um, and then it was, it wasn't until many years later that, you know, I was finishing business school and Xavier was thinking of leaving his company that we got together and said, Hey, let's work on something together. Um, and let's figure out what that is. So you mentioned that, uh, you guys thought about, and you talked about what is a project that would be worth working on for the next 15 to 20 years. So what was it about this, uh, structure or, or model that, that enticed you so much that you see yourself working on it for the next couple decades or probably longer? I, um, you know, I think what's really, what I really love about it is the accelerated learning. Um, so, you know, we, we now know a good amount about some pretty disparate industries. And I, I think that that, and, and you sometimes even find interesting mappings between them. And I think that is, that is one of the most interesting things 
So you can see something that one industry does really well and actually say, oh, no, nobody in this industry has even thought about um, you know, really implementing this. Uh, so, hey, we could bring this thing that every software as a service company does and we could bring it to plumbing. You know, and it turns out that customer satisfaction matters for both those businesses, but um, you know, only one really uh, implements the systems to, to track it. And so I think it's that, it's that sort of thing that I like. And I also like that I don't have operational responsibility. And that's something that uh, I've had to earn the right to not have, but it's something that I, um, I, I greatly value because if you're, all of your space is taken up with the minutia, you really don't have, you don't have time and space to think strategically or work strategically. So I, I, I like to have large open spaces of time in the day. And, um, you know, I like to really vigorously protect my schedule. And I think Sieve is the, you know, the same way so that we, we do view our role as getting ourselves out of day-to-day -day in every possible way, as opposed to making ourselves the center of things, which I think is your, is your natural bias when you start something or buy something, that you, you put yourself right at the center and you try to be the person that gives everyone every answer. Victor, do you have any other questions on you know, the, the origins or fundraising or anything? I think this would be a perfect, not. Okay, perfect segue to transitioning out of the day-to-day -day operations um, and how you guys hire, incentivize, uh, track, and work with the executive teams of your companies. I am exactly a month into, as you say, Xavier, earning my, my right to start to think strategically. I'm definitely in the minutia, in the day-to-day -day operations. And um, I was telling Sieva that I just bought two small businesses that are sort of intertwined, and we're at this capacity level where we could sort of could make that leap and like hire an operator on both sides, but it would be sort of a step back financially. So I'm curious, how do you guys choose your operators? How do you work with them? What is that cadence like? Maybe go into some of the nuts and bolts of what you look for in different operators, or maybe you're working with sellers. I don't know how, how you guys are structuring it. I'd be curious to know. So, you know, one of our basic thoughts going into this is that all businesses have similar building blocks, right? Even if you have a very different business, that's software company, for example, compared to a plumbing company, it seems like two totally different worlds. And in many ways it is, but if, if you break it down into its individual building blocks, it's ultimately a business that serves customers. So as Xavier said, you need good customer service. Uh, it's going to have technical staff, right? And we might not be technical. Like I'm not a software engineer, but I've built software companies. So you're going to need great technical staff. You're going to need great technical leadership. Um, and then you're going to need, you know, many other pieces that are going to put this business together. But if you can look at a business and you can dissect, you know, what are the individual building blocks that make this company what it is today? And what is missing from making sure that this is a great company, right? And what is that leap? And to your point, Benton, it's usually talent, right? For us, we probably spend, you know, at least I spend 70 or 80% of my time thinking about talent. How do we find great people? How do we empower great people to do more? Um, and how do we make sure that we're a company or we're a set of companies that people love to work with? So, and and I guess to your, to your kind of personal point to your personal story right now, when we buy a business, we always anticipate that our profit will go down in the first year. 
And the reason is because when you're a business owner and every dollar is going into your pocket and you get to decide, you know, do I hire someone great right now or do I buy myself a, a Maserati or do I go on a vacation? You're probably going to go on a vacation with your family, right? And you're going to say this person that I have in this seat is good enough. Um, I'd say, you know, one of the main learnings I've had in the last decade of starting companies that I kind of knew and I think people write about, but you don't really, you don't really feel it until you're in the driver's seat. And that's the, the value of amazing talent. There's a huge gap between good talent and great talent. And then the thing that I learned is that there's an even bigger gap between great talent and outstanding talent. And it's those outstanding people that are just going to change your life because you're going to, you're going to find someone who's outstanding, um, do whatever it takes to incentivize them and motivate them, make sure that they love their job. And that person is not only going to do exactly what you need, but they're going to do 10 things that you never thought you needed. And they're going to grow the business in a way that you didn't even think was possible. Right. And those are really the people that you look for. And those are the people that like, you know, keep me up at night uh, out of excitement. You know, I think about them. I'm like, oh, my God, this person is so amazing. They're going above and beyond the call of duty. And they did this thing that I never thought of. Um, that's what I get really, really excited for. So definitely look for those people, pay them whatever it takes, um, because, yes, it'll be a short term loss. But in the long term, they're going to attract the best talent, which is you know going to multiply their value in your organization. Um, and hopefully, you know, they're going to treat the business as their own and they're going to really think as an owner. And that's really what you need, especially in your role, as, especially in our role um, as an investor and, and someone who's not operating these businesses day to day. Yeah, I'll just I'll just build build on that. You know, probably the biggest mistakes that I made earlier in my career were having good enough people, even great people sometimes in roles where you needed an amazing person. Um, and you don't need a you don't need amazing people in every role, but ideally you do. Ideally, your admin assistant is amazing and you'll take them with you to the end of the world. I, um, I have a team of software developers that I've taken with me since 2003 uh, across you know, the two main companies I founded and then probably three or four other projects. Um, and they're working one of, on one of our businesses now. And they're, they're amazing software programmers. They don't want to be CEOs. They don't want to start software companies. Um, and I think that it's, it's very, very evident when someone's amazing within the first three months, I think that I've never seen an amazing person where it took them six or nine months to show their amazingness. Um, they almost always come in and immediately have not only have good ideas, but know exactly how to get them done. And they're thoughtful about them. And then the first few hires they make uh, are usually way better hires than, um, you would have, uh, otherwise had. And, and usually usually even any profitability dip from hiring someone amazing is, is very short uh, because they will almost immediately start projects, um, cut expenses that the company doesn't need, and they'll change the growth direct trajectory. And so if you think about the value of a business, let's just say with a million dollars of profit that's flat versus a business with a million dollars of profit that grows 20% a year, that growth business is basically tripled or quadrupled in value because 20% a year over 10 years, that's a, that's a way, way, way more valuable business than if it stayed flat. And so <clears throat> that's, 
that's the number one thing I would think about is who has who has a personal growth mindset and that will translate into the business growth and they're universally praised by everyone who's ever worked with them. That's that's usually the, the characteristic. And just to package that, basically I'm looking for three qualities. I'm looking for people that are entrepreneurial, they're kind, right? And then they're driven. And sometimes you'll get two of three of those. You don't want someone who's entrepreneurial and driven, but not kind, especially in our organizations, right? Um, and you don't want someone who's just entrepreneurial and, and just kind because they're not out there um, doing the work that needs to get done. So those are really the three main um, qualities that I'm looking for when we hire great people. If you were to code uh, that kind of um, hiring mentality um, and, and with a focus on those three qualities, <clears throat> what are you looking for that indicates that someone is entrepreneurial? That usually yeah. comes through in their previous experiences or stories that they tell you of their work. You don't need to have founded a company like me and Xavier to be entrepreneurial, right? You could have been a VP at a manufacturing company for 15 years. But when you tell us your story of how, you know, the business, you transformed the business where there was a potential issue or maybe the business was losing money and then they brought you in and you spent the next couple of years restructuring and turning the business around and you walk us through your story of you know how you interviewed people how you learned about what the problems were how you fixed the problems how you negotiated with suppliers how you got a better outcome for your customers that's an entrepreneurial behavior right that's not a person who came in was told to do three things and did three things well that person pretty much parachuted in with a machete in their teeth into a problematic situation they figured out what was going on and, you know, they strung the business together so that there was a positive outcome. So if you've had that happen once, that's a good indicator. But if you've had that happen two or three times, that's an amazing indicator. And the way I like to corroborate that is I always do reference checks, right? I'll have a conversation with the interviewee, with the candidate, learn a little bit about their experience. What did they do? They tell me this story of how they turned the business around or turned their division around. Um, and then at the end of the interview, I'll usually speak with three, four or five of their supervisors or their peers to see, okay, did this person really do the things they said or were they part of a much bigger team? Um, and, and maybe they didn't play a big role. The peer, the peer reference, I always think is one of the more interesting ones. I'll never forget when we were interviewing a guy who ended up being the CEO of Zola uh, Electric, the company I founded. And I talked to one of his peers who actually he hadn't provided as a reference. I just looked him up on LinkedIn and called him. And uh, he was a VP at this company. And I called this guy. He's like, oh, yeah, we all thought Bill should have been CEO. He just wasn't. <laughs> and so that sort of, that sort of reference uh, just speaks, you know, it speaks volumes. So once you've hired the right person, um, do, do you guys use a standardized standardized management framework across your businesses or um, even like standardized incentive plans? Or is it like totally variable and each company is uh, operated in kind of a unique way? So the, um, so the Warren Buffett model is he only, he only concerns himself with the top person's compensation and the rest of that, they, they sort out. Um, we take a little more hands-on approach, but what we find is that you can introduce the CEO of a business to let's say traction. You can't make them use it unless they want to use it. 
you know, so you can, you can introduce all sorts of process. Um, but other than some basic things, like we need a modern accounting system and we need a, you know, we need, we need a modern customer management system. Um, you know, those are sort of table stakes. So that's where we go a step deeper is on the, on the system that the company uses. But in terms of the way it operates, I think that there's a lot of routes to success, to be honest. And some of those are these highly regimented systems. And some are just people who've learned over the years what works and what doesn't. And they know how to find great people and align their goals and uh, get everybody going in the same direction. And that doesn't really require a playbook. We also come from the, the tech world where um, stock options or stock ownership in a business are just part of a compensation package anyways. And one thing that, that's one thing that we'd like to port with us into these kind of uh, sleepy old school industries where nobody owns stock, it's just the owner, right? Um, we wanna make sure that our employees incentives are aligned, that the executive team's incentives are aligned. And over a period of time, it's our hope that everyone can have an opportunity to own some piece of the company. And because at the end of the day, you know, we're not looking to flip the business two, three, four, five years later. We really want to hold these companies forever. And we believe that if you take good care of the employees, if you align their incentives well over the long term, great things will happen. Um, so that's the direction that we're rowing in right now. Can we dig into that? incentives in particular that's something i've i've told victor many times over the past 30 days that i've studied a lot and trying to absorb what's going on around me how like mechanically how do you guys incentivize the executives but also um the employees underneath your executives at the various companies like mechanically is it an esop program is it actual stock options do they get a chance to buy into the c-corp shares like what is that or is it profit sharing what does it look like you know, we, it actually depends on the company. And I would say that, um, so we have done, we haven't done a full ESOP yet, but we have big plans for one of them in one of our businesses. And I could see an ESOP and in a few other companies being a, um, a very interesting tool. I think ESOPs are best if you have companies where employees are very, very long tenured, let's say 10, 20, 30 years average, then because they're a retirement plan. And so, it's a really long-term career-long incentive. Um, for other companies we have that are run by more, uh, let, let's just say tech world type folks who have, they're more interested in which shares, you know, the management team owning shares in the C-Corp and then eventually that being democratized a bit more through a tradition, more traditional stock option plan. So we do set up individual cap tables for each company and, um, Sometimes phantom stock and profit sharing is actually simpler. We found, for example, in the contracting industry, profit sharing is sort of standard and in a way it makes sense because, you know, you really, you have to win some contracts and you have to see them through. And, you know, there's a really direct result of that, which is your profit share at the end of the year. And so if you just try to have people have a super long-term perspective, it's going to feel like they did all that work this year and that didn't change their, their base pay. So I think you always have to think about base pay and benefits as taking the day-to-day -day stress out of life and then um, short-term incentives as, as being directly connected to short-term performance and long-term incentive as being um, a retention mechanism and I'd say a sort of a psychological um, binding mechanism. 
yeah so just to drill down even further on that this is like, this is a little bit more selfish in nature i know you guys own i believe plumbing and maybe an hvac company as well directly related to what line of business i'm in as well and so would you say that an esop is more applicable there or are you guys using some other structure there just like you said for a retention tool but also as an opportunity to offer your people uh an opportunity for or to participate in the fruits of their labor that's kind of the way i, I like to phrase it yeah 100 percent. and and so i think that some people do an esop too soon so the the, the plumbing and hvac company is the one that we're looking at an esop for because our our main vision for that is to build long-term wealth for the for the people doing the work, and and ASAP's an amazing amazing tool for that. Um, it, it's frankly also a great tool for the owner to have an exit without selling the business. So it allows the owner to say sell thirty percent of the business to the employees and roll that tax free into other stocks or bonds, um, which is an incredible tax advantage. Um, so. I think that if you implement an ESOP before you've started open book management and before you've started an incentive comp, short-term incentive comp plan, you don't yet have people even in the mindset to say, I'd like to own some of this business because what's that? They don't even know there's, you know, they don't even know what the business is. They don't know if it makes any money or doesn't. And I think once you can get people to the phase of saying, hey, this is a really good business and we're going to start to almost like cut you in as a partner that and they that feels really exciting to them then that's when the esop is an, is an ideal mechanism to uh to do that i'm assuming you guys have started the short shorter term compensation structures that's right and that's usually one of the first things you have to do because a lot of times people do just get paid by the hour and there are there are no short-term incentives and nearly every short-term incentive has perverse incentives so you you don't uh you don't always want to roll those out overnight you want to just start um you know, start stepping those in where you can see that they work and they drive behavior. Yeah. Last question. And Victor, I'll let you, I'll let you take over. But if you care to offer any details on that, I would be all ears because we are hourly at the moment. And I'm, I have a couple of different ideas about how we might get to some of those incentives, but I'd be curious if you're willing to share any, and if not, totally understand. I, here's the way I would think about it, because it depends what sort of culture you have, and I've seen them both. There's one, there's one culture that is, we will have a few rock stars, and they will make a whole bunch of money, and there will be a leaderboard, and um, everybody will look at the leaderboard every day, and the only way that works really well is if there's a quality assurance department that's not bonused based on that. So you have someone making sure that they follow the process. They don't oversell things customers don't need. They don't use high pressure tactics. They accurately diagnose the issue. They sell a solution and they get paid a, a, a share of that. Um, so that that if that structure I've seen work really well. Also, what works really well is you have a book value for a job. Let's say it's eight hours to do this job. If you can do it in two, great. You can pay for eight. That also that also I've seen work really well. Um, there's sort of another philosophy, which is just pay above market on an hourly basis and have skilled technicians do the best thing for the customer. And that also, that also works really well. And I've seen a very, very successful business do that. And what they do is they sort of keep stepping up that hourly rate as you get more skills. So as you, as you become more technically sophisticated, as you get better customer reviews, as you get tenure, all those just add to your hourly rate. And so some of these hourly rates actually get pretty high. 
and that uh, that has its own um, incentive quality. Yeah, that's that's how we're structured right now. Um, several employees with 30 plus year tenures with the company and their hours, their paid hours are directly rated to their billable hours. So it's a pretty good tight incentive. Um, but you know, if I could figure out a way to give them a little bit more of the fruits of their labor and, and increase the incentive, it'd be, it'd be interesting. So anyways, Victor, I know you had a couple questions. Yeah, I'm interested in hearing about y'all's management style and your day-to-day operations. Um, I know that uh, Berkshire is traditionally very hands-off and they can do that because they hire excellent leadership teams. Um, I mean, there's some other people that we've uh, hosted on the podcast that have similar models like Andrew Wilkinson, who I'm I'm sure you guys know. Um, And I think, I could be wrong, I think Andrew just requires like one PDF document per quarter of like a few financial metrics. what is y'all's day-to-day like and what do you require from your various businesses? Yeah, we have a similar philosophy to, to Berkshire Hathaway where, you know, we try to be pretty hands-off because we're hiring amazing people. They have a long-standing reputation and kind of background of doing great things. So we really try not to get in their way. Um, we're probably a little bit more hands-on than maybe Andrew is. We do like to do monthly board calls, especially in the first kind of six months of owning a business, just to make sure we really know what's going on, what kind of issues they're facing. Um, and given our operational experience, we can try to chime in or guide them a little bit. Um, other than that, you know, so, so we are quite hands-on on the management side. As Xavier said, we, you know, him and I, we like to have large blocks of time where we just get to think and um, not have to sprint in in different directions on on the companies that we're working on. Um, We do like to guide our companies in the direction of, you know, using technology, for example, um, or using best accounting practices. So we have an internal accounting team and we have a chief of staff who helps us um, kind of nudge the companies in that direction. You know, they don't have to use our suggestions but if a company is isn't using a crm and they have a sales function at their company you know we're going to point them to that and we're going to we're going to recommend that they use the product and we're also not shy about paying up for the best software product in the industry you know i think oftentimes we'll buy a business and you know like we talked about earlier the owners are looking to save every penny they can because that's going back in their pocket but in our experience, you know, the best, the, the industry leaders in a software category are there for a reason. And that might help you kind of cut headcount or cut headaches and just deliver a better experience. So um, we, I guess we can, we, in that case, we'll help our company CEOs get over the hump of making that expensive decision. Yeah, we, we try to be pretty project-based to the extent we can. I think, I think the you know, the monthly board means for us are downside mitigation. We more than anything, it, it's it, it. I would say also an audience for the for the person running the company to, you know, to to ask for help and to get to have people to collaborate with as as sort of peers and thought partners. Um, but it's also that we don't want something to be going wrong for three months, um, especially if we have a shorter history with someone. Uh, we wanna we wanna make sure that we. Uh, you know, we, we just have our eyes on it. So I would say kind of financial reporting is probably the other place where we focus a lot early 
is getting those standards up to um, modern, you know, modern standards. I don't think we've been perfect at it yet, but it's um, it's it's probably the thing I see that is most universally needing to be updated when you take over a, one of these businesses. Correct me if I'm wrong, but all of your businesses operate fully independently and, and there are not shared services, correct? There's, there's very limited shared services and they're billed like a consultancy. So for example, we found uh, we have a lot of recruiting work to do. And so it was, it was much more cost-effective to have a full-time recruiter who bills out uh, as a, essentially a consultant to, to each of the companies. So we have a few of those. Uh, accounting. What about like one. accounting? Yeah, so accounting's, accounting's the one we've been working on to, to try to build a little internal team that can just run everything to the same standard. And uh, I, I'll be thrilled. We're, we're still building that one, but I'll be thrilled when that's in place because that's probably the single biggest, the, the place where you do need standardization. And frankly, where standardization helps because accounting is not a core competency for any of these companies. Yeah. Um, what, what about something that's like not a core competency for like anyone, which is like IT? Yeah, that's IT is a funny one. <laughs> it's a, that's more of a kind of preferred vendor type thing where, where okay. again, yeah. you want to you wanna find a vendor who has a more modern approach. Uh, but some of these companies, they're, they have a longstanding relationship with a local firm and, and you don't want to screw that up either because you, they do need it. They need that local hands-on. And um, some of the companies come with somewhat archaic uh, systems. Uh, we have one, one system still runs on DOS that we we're not fully off of yet because it's it's right in the middle of this business. So, I can confirm the 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 local IT sort of deal. Uh, it kind of burns me up every time I look at the invoices and thinking like, "Holy smokes! I'm paying X per hour for this half hour that someone called in about a spam email that had nothing to do with." I mean, anybody in their right mind would know this is spam. You know, like that type of stuff. So, I'm kind of chuckling over here just listening. But it's not as bad as MS DOS. Um, I thought we we might have had it bad. That seems um, no. We uh, have to make if that server were to go down, we would have a serious problem. So we poured off of it. So yeah. uh, Ben, unless you have anything there on kind of like internal ops, I really want to jump into sourcing and market analysis, finding the right businesses to acquire, and then kind of how you structure those. Yeah, yeah. Let's lump in like a case study if you guys are willing to do maybe a case study in conjunction with that. Yeah, maybe like the most most recent business you've acquired, what that process looked like from start to finish. Yeah, maybe we can talk about um, our business in Arkansas. What do you think? Yeah, let's let's do that one. I think that's a that's a pretty that's a that's a good example. Um, so we we are now the proud owners of a air conditioning um, maintenance and construction company up near Bentonville, Arkansas, which is up up uh, up where Walmart has its uh, big headquarters. Um, we uh, we bought the business maybe six months ago now. Time time flies. That's kind of wild to say. Um, we had originally heard about it through a broker. Um, and basically the day after we heard about it, the business went under LOI with another group. Um, and we had a good relationship with the broker. So we said, hey, just you know, reach back out to us if anything falls through. Love this business, great profit, great reputation locally. They don't even have a website actually. They've been running for, you know, 40 plus years without a website, just on their pure reputation. People know their phone number, so they just call them. 
it's it's pretty amazing. Um, and they also work with a lot of local general contractors. So, you know, for that particular business, they've never really needed to grow it. And they've always wanted to keep it kind of a small family business. Um, but yeah, so, you know, a couple months later, we got a call back from the broker and he said, hey, are you guys still interested in this business? You know, we're still kind of under LOI for another few days or so, but I think uh, this group is, is kind of struggling to put the financing together. Um, they were looking to buy three or four companies at the same, all at the same time. So um, this, this company was going to be the main kind of anchor um, in that group, the anchor meaning like the largest company. Uh, in that group. So we said, yeah, we're absolutely still interested. And um, we'd already kind of looked at the business previously, dug into the financials. So he updated us on everything. Things were going great. And, um, you know, we basically said, look, we will move to close this business within a month, right? We'll get you guys an LOI tomorrow at a fair price, a similar price that they had on the table before. Um, and then within a month, we'll do all of our due diligence and we'll close that business really quickly. Um, and things went super smoothly. Um, Xavier flew out to Arkansas. He got to see the, uh, the, the, the office. Um, apparently they had a company cat, which, uh, which came with the deal. That was really important to us. Um, but it was an amazing team, you know, great, great management team. His sons were working in the business and they still work with the business today. And around them, they, they had a, uh, an, an amazing technical staff, just a group of people who've been around for 10, 15, 20 years. And you could tell that they had a great culture because the grand, you know, the grandpa had invited his son to come work at the company, who then invited his son to come work at the company, and that just tells, you know, it, it just tells so many stories of of this culture and of the value that this company had built locally and the brand that the company had built locally. Um, and that's not something that we've talked about yet, but it's definitely a learning that we've had we really look for businesses that have a good culture. Um, and they may not have a word to define what it is when you get there, because culture is kind of like a tech company, you know, woo woo thing that grew in the last 10, 15 years. But when you get to a company that is a good culture, you can tell. There's a lot of different factors that, that indicate that. And when you get to a company that has a bad culture, you can also tell pretty quickly. And if you buy a company with a good culture, it, def it usually means that people are in the boat rowing in the same direction. They care about the customers. They're making sure that everyone's taken care of. But if you buy a business with a bad culture, you kind of don't know what you don't know, right? There might be hidden pockets of, uh, of gotchas or things that you couldn't really diligence in the deal, but that pop up because, you know, employees are disgruntled. They're not happy. The boss has been mistreating them. So we, so that's something that, that we care a lot about as a little tangent, hopefully a helpful tangent. Um, but yeah, back, back to this business. So, you know, we bought it six months ago, we've been going through an integration process with them, which means, you know, getting them on the most updated systems, building a website, um, growing their service department. Um, but it's, it's all in all been an, an, an amazing acquisition for us. So happy to field any questions for you guys. Yeah, my first question, and I understand that this may be a really dumb question. Um, I, I I always think that like family businesses are really fascinating, and like how that transition process could work. Um, why would a business like a, a successful, profitable business that's been in business for forty years that has um, 
potential successors already there, why would they want to sell? Oh man, I'll write a thesis on that. So I think that, um, you know, if, if I were, if I were in the shoes of the owner there who was retiring, I would have done it differently, but I also have a finance background, right? So I would have said, you know what, I'll make a really soft loan to the sons. This thing is profitable enough and, and they'll just sort of pay me off over 10 years and, and I'll be fine. I think that the skill they actually didn't have was how to structure a management team. So they, they actually had not, they didn't know how to delegate the responsibility or identify who of the, of the sons would take what role and, you know, really hand things off. So the business had been successful by its, its, um, you know, its senior partners in essence, it was three brothers, not, not one, but, you know, really controlling things and doing all the work themselves and, and not really growing the business beyond a scale where they could control it all themselves. And so I would say moving from that to sort of a modern executive team-based model, it's hard for them to even imagine that's possible. And so for them, there's a fair bit of risk that, hey, my retirement evaporates if my son isn't as good as running the business as me, <laughs> right? And so that's scary. And then they don't, they feel like they can't just walk away if that's the case. They almost want someone else to come in and be sort of half transition consultant and half financier of a transition. So in a, in a weird way, the, the next generation there will actually build their wealth through, um, you know, through stock ownership in a, hopefully a portfolio of these companies, um, which, which is a really, uh, you know, for, for the work as an executive. So uh, when you guys bought the business, were the three sons, uh, the three primary leaders of the business? No. So the okay. three retiring owners um, basically were, were still doing the work. One had, one had stepped out of operations, but the other two were still heavily involved. And so this is, this is probably one thing that we were able to do as a, as a hold co um, with a little bigger budget is we, we hired someone who ran, uh, he actually ran operations for me at Better World Books, um, about a, you know, about 200 person operation uh, he ran. And so we hired him and said, hey, your job is to fly into Arkansas every other week and just help. <laughs> you're not, you're kind of temporary general manager and your job is to, you know, just work with everybody to transition from where we are to, to where we're going. I'm going to uh, put words into Benton's mouth and, and ask you guys a question that Benton and I have talked about his business business uh, recently, um, but Benton, you feel free to jump in here and cut me off at any point. Um, I think that or I, I haven't bought a business, but I could see myself buying a business and um, stepping in and, and immediately thinking of 10, 15 things that I immediately want to change um, or improve, like easy, just low hanging fruit. When you guys bought this business or when you buy businesses in general, is there a, like, maybe it's not set in stone, but is there kind of a time period where all you're trying to do is uh, leave a good first impression and do no harm? Or are you immediately starting to make changes? Um, we, we believe in the do no harm at first approach. And it's not as much, I mean, of course you can fix little things. If, if there's not an electronic time clock, you can put in an electronic time clock. But 
there's there's a process to understand what is actually happening and who the people are and what changes they recommend. And I think then there's a need to do a workshop where everyone gets in a room, not on the shop floor and maps out the strategy. What are we gonna do? Where are we gonna focus? Because you know, strategy is really about saying no to things, not, not saying yes to things. And so of those 10 or 15 ideas, what are the two or three that are really gonna have the highest leverage and how do we do those perfectly? Um, would, would, is always kind of the discipline. And, and I think Xavier and I have been in the entrepreneurship ring for long enough to know that we don't know everything. You know, and we do come to businesses with a lot of ideas, but I think we've been served, you know, humble pie enough times to know that, okay, like go in and meet the people that are doing the work and listen to them and just give them a platform in order to speak up because, you know, in the previous um, iteration of this business, maybe before we acquired it, those employees may have not had that platform, right? That, that may have not been an opportunity for them. So they may have a lot of great ideas, um, but they just don't know that they can share them with you yet. So for us, it's really, how do you create a safe environment um, that people like to work and they really trust that, you know, if they come to you with a good idea, then you'll consider implementing it. If they come to you with a bad idea, you won't scold them for it, you know? Um, and I think that's that's a really important exercise in those first 90 days, especially because they don't really know who we are. Yeah, I, I would agree, definitely agree with that. I've gotten pitched a few different ideas that, you know, I'm weighing right now on implementation, but also there's a couple ideas that I would like for guys to sort of get on board with. One, one is a service dispatch system. So I'd be curious what, you know, it sounded like you guys might be working on something like a software implementation there. I'd be curious what you guys are actually doing, what program you're using. I mean, I think in your industry, if you can use it, I would just use Service Titan for the, at least for the HVAC side of the business. I don't know what the pro property management um, software is, but Service Titan is kind of the most expensive bells and whistles BMW of HVAC and plumbing. And I know they've added a couple other industries as well. So um, if you can use them and it fits into your model, I, I recommend just paying up and, and using that product. How has the implementation gone with, um, I mean, frankly, just, you know, blue collar guys that just want to get out there and do their job and not have to deal with any BS, like learning something that has nothing to do with their job? Yeah, I, I think that's always a challenge, right? Getting anybody to adopt a new technology is tough. I think one thing that we've made a mistake with in the past and that we've learned from is implementing too many changes at the same time, right? Bringing in two or more softwares. Um, so if you're going to go in and apply and train people on Service Titan, just focus on Service Titan for, you know, four or five, six months, um, and that'll be enough for folks. But it is a totally different uh, learning experience. It's a different habit. I'm not the one who's historically trained the people on the ground to do it. So I don't know kind of what the level of difficulty is, but but I think it's uh, I think you're going to get quite a bit of pushback at first, especially from folks that have been around for a while. Yeah, and, and it's worth remembering two things with this stuff. You know, it's worth connecting it to the hassles that they experience. So it's it's if you're in the field every day, it's really annoying if you don't know how much inventory there is, you don't know how much you should charge the customer. You maybe have to deal with the billing department instead of taking a credit card. So there's all the, the, the reasons you implement software are, are really things that need to be communicated to the team of why it's a good thing. And then 
truth be told, usually people get really excited about their their job getting simpler in some ways. And sometimes that's about showing them demos. Sometimes it's about saying, hey, we're going to try this out for the first three months. You know, some early adopters and some some laggards, um, like like with anything. Um, and then ultimately it's tied to compensation, then then that'll have a natural uh, process of um, the people who are most motivated to make more money will, you know, will adopt it and will use it to its fullest. All right. So obviously keeping tabs on it and keeping good relationships with brokers uh, is, is a great source of deal flow. Is there anything else you guys do that that contributes to having strong deal flow? I mean, eight businesses in two years is really strong. Yeah, yeah. we've been moving. <laughs> we have been moving pretty quick. Um, I, I, you know, I love proprietary search. I had a, I had a Twitter thread on this, um, and I think there's actually m- multiple flavors of proprietary search. Um, so one one thing we love is going deep in an industry getting to know people involved and letting them know we're looking for businesses. And then a lot of stuff will get referred that you wouldn't find and certainly wouldn't find that biz by sell. Um, I would say there's, there's the, the kind of general um, proprietary search. Um, there's re- a lot of people do it really poorly. Um, and I think the effective people are discerning and persistent. So they find uh, great businesses and then they make sure they get a chance to speak to the owner rather than just sending a, a, a cold email with no context saying, I'd like to buy your business. Um, that, that gets a much lower response rate than, than actually trying to have a conversation with the owner and try to convince them of why you're the perfect person to, to take over the business. Yeah. And I, I would add, you know, business owners are, are really busy. And like as a searcher, somebody who's looking to buy a business, you should just always be really mindful of that. They don't have time to kind of take your call. You know, they're usually on site talking to staff or, you know, fixing a plumbing issue or whatever, whatever it is. So don't, you know, if you, if you want to start reaching out to folks, don't just kind of put together a huge list and start blasting random owners to talk to them about their business um, that, you know, that they're just too busy for that. And it can feel a little disrespectful to them at times, but to Xavier's point, you know, if you find an industry that you're really excited about and you start building a muscle, uh, kind of muscle memory in that industry, which means going to trade shows or virtual trade shows nowadays, maybe talking to the brokers that represent those types of industries and talking to service providers, which is lawyers and accountants, et cetera, that represent owners in those types of industries you'll start building up a better thesis personally. I'm like, why do I like this type of business? What do I think is important uh, when I'm looking for a company? And that will translate when you talk to an owner, right? When these owners get on the call with you, they don't want to hear that, you know, you're interested in general service business, right? Because they run, you know, maybe a plumbing company or they run, you know, uh, like a HVAC or landscaping company. They, what's better is if you come to them and you say, look, you know, so-and-so attorney or so-and-so accountant recommended you, they said, maybe you're the best business in this area. I've been looking for a company in this geographic region. And here's a little bit about my background. And here's like kind of my perspective on landscaping companies and what I think you guys are doing well and some opportunities for, for this business to be even better. Right. So if you, if you spend time and you go deep on a specific vertical or industry, you're going to talk the talk and you're going to walk the walk, which the owner is going to appreciate. And when you're the owner of a good business, 
you're particularly busy and you're getting hit up all the time to sell your company, right? You're not the only one out there who wants to reach them. So they'll really, they'll appreciate that depth. They'll appreciate that understanding um, and that will translate. So, so um, I, I recommend um, people start with that. I think just to follow up that question, how as sort of former technology guys, software guys, did you stand out to a seller in the in like a blue collar trade space? I think one of the things that I think helped me was that I had a real estate background. Um, so I'm really curious, like how how did you guys convince you know this owner that you guys were the one and and that you you know, would do no harm, but you wanted to really progress the business and hold it for the long term. Like, what was it about Enduring Ventures that really, I guess, turned the owner on to you guys, if you will? Well, I think there's a couple different things. First is, you know, some people say game recognized game. You know that phrase? So Xavier and I have been entrepreneurs before we started businesses, right? We've gone through the process of hiring people. We've you know, almost miss payroll, or I've had to pay people's payroll out of my personal bank account. So I know the ups and downs or the challenges that come with starting and working through a company. So when I meet, you know, let's say a landscape business owner, sure, you know, I've never ran a landscaping company before, but I speak their language and I really understand, you know, what does it mean to hire people? What does it mean to build a great company? and get to where they are today. And I think I have a deep appreciation and a deep empathy for those owners and they can feel that, right? Because I share my story and then I hear their story and they see kind of a a kindred spirit in that. So that's one piece that's really important. I'd say the other piece is just our general philosophy at Enduring Ventures, which is buying great businesses, carrying on owner legacies and holding them forever. So we are, you know, essentially the anti-private equity as far as owners are concerned. Owners are getting called all the time or, you know, maybe their friends have sold to private equity. And as we know, private equity is looking to turn a profit in two, three, four years on the business. And oftentimes what that means is, you know, they might be cutting corners with suppliers, with customers, with employees. So as an owner, that's a little bit scary right? Because you've spent 30, 40 years building your legacy in your community. People know you as Bob's landscaping in this little town, right? And if you turn that business over to a private equity firm, that's going to fire half the employees or start cutting corners just to sell it three years later, you are going to feel that, right? You're going to see it happening and you're going to hear about it at town barbecues with your friends. And I think it's going to be painful. So they really warm up to, you know, I'd say folks really warm up to this idea that, look, we're going to buy your business and we're just going to take really good care of it, right? We're going to take care of the employees. We're going to take care of the customers because for us to win, this business has to be successful 10, 20, 30 years from now. And that's really what it takes. We can kind of invest in those types of programs. Um, and the last piece is, you know, when, when you're talking about certain businesses, you know, for example, like an HVAC business, right? What, what is an HVAC business? Um, there's service providers, there's direct sales folks working for you, there's technicians, and you're essentially going door to door and providing a service to people's homes. Now, Xavier spent 10 years building a, a solar company end to end in Africa, right? So they did everything from build the technology, the software, the hardware, then they had their own distribution team, sales team, they had their own technicians, they had their own paying system. 
So you could almost correlate a business like HVAC and many others to that type of company. So there's a lot of learnings that you can take from one business and bring it to the other and, um, and therefore give the owners a lot of comfort that look, we're gonna, we're gonna take good care of, 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 your, of your company and of, of your employees. I know we're coming up on time. So, or I'm sorry, you go ahead. I was just going to say, I would also just say, be yourself. You know, if you're, if, if you like, if you like to wear a suit and go to the country club or, you know, whatever, then, you know, bring that energy. If you, if you, you know, if you like to wear blue jeans, wear, wear blue jeans to the meeting. Don't, I think more than anything, just don't fake yourself. Cause I think that will, that will come across. If you're trying to be something that you're not, then, I think uh, most owners will smell that from a mile away. So I have to ask this question just selfishly before we wrap into the, uh, we wrap up with the final questions. And that is, I, I know both of you guys have your MBAs. Um, I've just moved up to Chapel Hill to get mine starts in August. Um, I've just been asking different people who've gotten their MBAs this question, which is um, if, if you could go back and, and redo your MBA, is, is there anything that, you to this day are just super glad you did and would recommend it to anyone or anything that you didn't do that you wish you did if you could do it over. Well, congrats on getting in. That's uh, that's pretty cool. Appreciate it. Yeah, it's going to be a great, great life experience for sure. Um, so Xavier actually did his MBA and he, he'll talk about it in a second, but I had considered it for a little while and I went to him and asked him whether I should do it or not because most entrepreneurs don't do MBAs, right? I think the, right. the kind of ongoing mindset is that if you've started a business, you've probably learned more than an MBA can teach you about running a business. Definitely. Um, there is some truth to that, but also, you know, I, I took some amazing classes with some amazing professors and it certainly opened my eyes to, you know, the world of corporate finance, which I didn't learn building a tech company, for example. Um, I think your MBA is like, a, it's, it's like a buffet right? You can kind of go there and you can eat whatever you want. You can eat a bunch of cake, you can travel and you can party all the time, or you can have kind of a balanced meal. Um, I'd say the best thing that I did was really try to really try to like live the life of a student and lean into being a student again, even though you're not, you know, young and you're not in high school or college anymore. Um, while you're a universe, while you're an MBA, people will see you as a student and therefore they'll want to kind of help you in your journey and kind of connect with you in different ways. So what I did is, uh, you know, I used the school email and I used the school alumni database and I reached out to probably hundreds and hundreds of alumni for kind of a variety of different topics. You know, I just wanted to chat, learn about their industries. I started a healthcare company while I was doing business school. We were looking into doing enduring ventures and I was reaching out to people in similar industries. People are just happy to talk to you, you know, and uh, it blew my mind that a lot of my classmates had never opened the alumni directory while they were in school, right? Um, I would make it a personal mission to email five alumni per week while you're there, you know? I love that. Yeah, I would. Uh, the only thing I would add to that is I think there's, um, I would look outside the MBA school. It's really easy to get in the MBA bubble, but probably the most interesting uh, business opportunities and relationships you'll find might be in the engineering school, for example, or um, who knows, even in the art school, if that's your thing. Um, so 
I, and, and I definitely double down on that as a, um, you know, as, as a student. Um, and I would also say it's helpful if you have some idea of what you might like to do and you communicate that idea because that will have a manifesting uh, power of its own where everyone will know, okay, you know, Vic, Victor's the guy who's going to go buy a business when he's done. <laughs> oh, my uncle's got a business, you know, oh, my, my friend bought one. You should talk to him. And a, a couple years of that, you, you may have, um, you may have some luck come your way. For sure. Well, thank you guys. Um, Benton, you want to roll into the final questions? Yeah. <clears throat> Three questions we asked all of our guests that come off a guest uh, on, the, on the podcast. The first one is what does doing business the right way mean to you? I, I think it means starting from values, not starting from financial outcomes. And so if you, if you're clear on your values and, and then, then most decisions can be made through that framework. Have you guys sat down and sort of enumerated what those might be for enduring ventures? We, we have, it's funny. We, we've actually done more of the values work. Um, I think CA and I have been so aligned um that we we had some principles and then we we all we almost kind of go through the definition process when we have a values-based question we always we explicitly ask the question what is you know what is the values-based decision here first and what what are those values based on so i would say we could probably write that today in an hour but because it's it's him and i making decisions we tend to we tend to make that pretty informally yeah, that yeah. makes sense. I think it, it manifests itself in everything we do, right? I think when people think about values, it's like internal. How do you, you know, how do you treat your employees or how do you make decisions for customers? For us, it's everything, right? Like, how do we talk to owners of businesses? How do we talk to service providers and brokers? You know, how do we act during negotiations, right? I think, you know, many folks have been in a negotiation where, you know, an analyst or someone on the finance side is just trying to eke out every little bit of profit. Whereas Xavier and I oftentimes will sit down and look at a contract and say, well, what's fair here from both sides, right? And we're, we're, we're usually not pushing uh, onerous terms on our owners. And, and that's certainly one of our values too. Are there any personal habits or practices that you guys are dedicated to that help keep you sort of centered or physically fit, mentally fit, or that you just kind of enjoy doing for decompression purposes? God, the more exercise, the better. I should really exercise three hours a day, to be honest. <laughs> I, it would it would improve my financial outcomes even more and you just your brain works so much better if you exercise yeah i agree i think exercise good sleep is super important to me um you know meditation i'm not as good at keeping it up but when i do have a good meditation practice i can tell it extrapolates to the rest of my life um yeah i think i think working out back to xavier's point that's key yeah, I would definitely agree with that. I've found that, uh, just like Jocko Willink would say, it turns out if you work out early in the morning, you'll go to bed earlier and you actually sleep better. So you kind of tend to le need a little bit less sleep. That's kind of how it's worked for me. But it's really hard not to hit the snooze button at whatever time you decide to, to get out of bed. So, but yeah, I'm with you. I love to work out too. So, all right, well, what business hasn't been started yet but needs to be. And another way of asking this is if you could snap your fingers and solve one pain point, what would it be? Um, the business that I've been thinking a lot about recently, um, and I want to start it, but I don't really have time right now. I might start it later. Hopefully, you know, if somebody, somebody here listening starts it, give me a call and I'll invest in it. Um, I'm fascinated by mentorship circles and masterminds. 
I think YPO is a really famous one. There's a few others um, that have a variety of, of ways to run this. Basically, you bring a group of people together um, of shared kind of interests or shared kind of career levels, and they get together once a month or twice a month and they share you know, their personal experiences or obstacles that they're facing. Um, YPO, I think, charges you know, anywhere between six to $10,000 a year, I think is their, is their cost. And there's basically no overhead for YPO because the groups self-regulate, right? The groups meet by themselves. They have their own kind of me uh, mentorship model. They have their own guides um, and YPO gets the benefit from these memberships. These groups are an amazing way to learn from each other. They're an amazing way to share information and just build lifelong friendships, especially around like shared purpose and kind of shared goals. So Sean and I used to host one of these in San Francisco. We didn't charge for it. It was just a group of people that we met who were running companies that we thought were interesting that we would invite. And you know, these, these folks were business nerds that like us. They like to sit around and just like talk about the latest companies, the latest innovations, brainstorm cool ideas. But also we gave everyone an opportunity to share an obstacle that they were facing in their business in this confidential, um, in this kind of like confidential arena where they knew people had the experience to help them, but also wouldn't go around and tell their investors or their employees. So I think there's room to, to grow this idea of YPO. And I think everybody needs it, right? YPO is very selective. You need to hit some kind of personal revenue or personal financial threshold to get in. Most groups are like that, but I think every college student graduating in the US, and I think there's, you know, I think there's like 3 million college students every year that graduate. I think there's a huge opportunity to create these mentorship circles and mentorship groups so that people can continue learning in their career and learn from each other and have a group of people that they can turn to that they know, hey, this is confidential. They're not going to share, but they are going to help me work through whether it's a career obstacle or a personal obstacle. And it doesn't have to be five or $10,000 a year. You know, it can be $500 a year. Um, you can build a really amazing subscription business off of this while also helping a lot of people um, through their life. So I think uh, that's something that I'm really excited about. And, and I've looked at kind of different ways of starting one of these groups. Investment opportunity for the, or an operating company opportunity for somebody out there in the uh, audience. So, well, we like to give all of our guests a couple minutes, just give them the floor to ask the audience anything. If you're in need of anything, if there's something that the audience can do to help you all, the floor is yours. You know, I, I have, um, I have one request for the audience, which is um, I would love a few more all-purpose entrepreneurs, ideally with a technical background, to be on our radar. Like I would say the ideal profile is probably age 25 to 30, and you don't know exactly what you want to do, or maybe you had something that didn't work out. Um, I have a hardware idea I'd love to hand to someone. I have a, I have a services idea I'd love to hand to someone. Um, we've done a few of these incubations now and they've been phenomenal. So our, our gap is not good ideas or capital. It's actually just the right, the right entrepreneurs. So that would be, that'd be something that I would. And, and if anybody wanted to uh, do a cold outreach to, to me on, on Twitter, it's at, at Xavier Helgeson, um, and just explain to me why you're, you're, you really are a very good entrepreneur and, uh, why you might be the right person to work on projects with us. Perfect. Perfect. We will make sure to link that in the show notes. Uh, we post them on Twitter. So, Sieva, 
Xavier, this was an absolute pleasure. Thank you guys so much for coming on the show, and I'm looking forward to following y'all's progress going forward. Thanks so much. Thanks, guys. This was great. This is Benton here again. Thanks so much for listening to the Circle of Competence podcast. To find more episodes like this one, go to circleofcompetence.co. That's circleofcompetence.co to sign up for my weekly podcast emails, as well as a monthly summary of links to blog posts and articles I liked most from the previous month. Finally, if you enjoyed the show, please leave us a rating on iTunes, which will help more people discover the work we are doing to explore the entrepreneurial investor's journey. Thanks again for listening.